Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, October 12th, 2023, and we're joined this week by the Honolulu Fire Department's Deputy Fire Chief, Jason Samala. Chief, thank you so much for making some time for us. Oh, thank you for having me, and good morning. You know, it was about a month and a half ago that we had uh, Chief Kalani Howe on this podcast, and he talked about the personnel from this county helping out in Maui County, following mm-hmm. the fires in Lahaina. Do we still have boots on the ground in, in Maui County? Actually, we still do. We still have a couple of personnel there. They're supporting the EOC right now as an incident management team member. Um, but as of this Friday, actually Friday, October 13th, we're bringing everybody back home. So we've been there since um, the day after the fire, I believe it was what, uh, August 9th. Yeah. So from August 9th, we've been providing continuous support and what does that mean, incident management? For those that aren't familiar uh, with these fire terms, what was what was that team doing? Yeah, so the incident management team basically is a concept that um, was developed in California many, many years ago to address the big wildfires. And basically, it's just a team that comes in to help manage the incident. So they're not the ones actually on the fire ground fighting the fires, but they're more at the incident command posts, um, you know, t- taking care of logistics, planning, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so that was a bulk of our support up there. I you know they were mainly inserted within the uh, Maui's Emergency Operating Center. Although that first day, the first couple of days, actually um, on our first deployment, um, we did have firefighters boots on the ground actually engaged in firefight. Um, and then a couple of days following, we had our rescue personnel up there um, doing the um, search and kind of recovery efforts, both on land and in the water. Maris talked about creating kind of like a workforce group um, but what else is being done from your department to make sure that should a wildfire, a massive one break out here on Oahu, that we are prepared to deal with that as, be- as best we can? Yeah. So, you know, um, so for years now, we've had a we called the WUI group, which basically stands for Wildland Urban Interface um, Group. And it's a program that we started many years ago. Um, basically before our time, um, before it became the, the fire chiefs. Um, and it's really to address, you know, the west side, the central wild, these, these known areas where they have been big wildfire, brush fires in the past. So we kind of brush off those SOGs, re-engage with them. I mean, we always are engaged with them, but mm-hmm. uh, more of a heightened sense of urgency. So looking at those SOGs and some of the immediate things that we we, we did differently and, and changed as a result of the, of the fires in Maui was to enhance our initial response. Um, so before in the past, we just dispatched an engine company to a fire uh, based on the 911 call, and it will let the captain or the incident commander at scene determine what his needs were. But now um, we realize that there was a need for more resources immediately in addition to additional water. Mm-hmm. So now we're dispatching two engines and a tanker, and that's been proven to be um, very beneficial. In addition to that, we've went out there and reassessed all our, we call them the target hazards. You know, um, and then we kind of assign some risk to them based on the various factors, mostly fire behavioral factors, um, but, but we do consider water supply and those other um, things that we need to fight the fire. And following something like this, it's natural that people are kind of on edge, right? But yes. what kind of things are you hearing? I know that people sometimes want to fireproof their homes or their businesses. Are you guys getting those kinds of questions? Yes, absolutely. I think most of our calls are coming here right now is mostly residents identifying, um, you know, tall, thick brush near their homes, right? Yeah. So what we end up doing is we send out our codes inspectors to um, you know, evaluate the area. And based on the fire code, we can recommend and suggest things they can do, or in worst case scenario, we'll issue a notice of violation to the homeowner or the property owner, uh, at which time they, they need to go in there and basically clear their brush. And basically the fire code basically says um, from the structure or from the house, 
anywhere from 30 to 100 feet, there has to be that much clearance mm -hmm. uh, from the house to the brush. So we'll go on there, identify what, what the violation is, and we'll issue, we'll call them the NOVs. And in addition to that, we'll, we'll work with other partners. So currently what we're doing now is we partner with the um, State Department of Transportation. And so what they're doing for us is um, clearing fire breaks. So they're basically reducing some of the um, fuel loads between structures and, and the actual brush on these big properties. Has that call volume, would you say, has it doubled? Has it, you know, what's the responsibility of your department yeah, versus like a private property owner, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, as far as the calls to our prevention bureau, it, it's basically doubled. Yeah. I don't know the exact stats, but they've what I've heard is it, it's increased a lot since the uh, Maui fires. And really, it doesn't really depend on who the property owner is, whether it's state, federal, or, or a private owner. Uh, we don't really discriminate against anyone. If it if it's violating the fire code, then we'll issue whoever that knows the violation. And I've noticed HFD has a few PSAs running on television now. Is that mm. in response, or was that kind of something in the works before Maui? Yeah, we we've always had um, PSAs running. Um, most of them relate to just general fire prevention, mostly structure fires. Uh, we do have a couple related to hiking mm -hmm. rescues, but I think in light of the the Maui fires, um, we push out additional wildland um, PSAs, fire PSAs, and and mostly related to, right, one, pointing them to um, the Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization. Mm -hmm. So they're a nonprofit group that produce a lot of good stuff. They go out there, they actually do st scientific studies, right? They get professors on board, and they produce a lot of information for the public. Um, so they can prepare themselves and prevent actual wildfires, whether it's hardening their home or creating these fire breaks between their home and, and whatever their brush. So a lot of PSAs really reference that. Um, some of them, you know, remind the residents to, you know, if you see something, basically report it in a timely manner or report it immediately. Because the sooner we can get resources out there, the sooner we can prevent the spread and having it grow into something larger. So I'll just touch base on, on, on the four of the kind of recent ones. Um, and I want to really thank the, the mayor for supporting this effort because I know he's, he's helped on with his media background mm -hmm. and his network. So, um, you know, the, the latest two was a wildfire prevention um, video we pushed out. And that one kind of, you know, and the good thing about these videos, they're very short. They're right. only 30 seconds, but they give some very valuable information, easy, to, re easy to, to retain, easy to apply to implement within your own home. So wildfire prevention basically just talks about um, the wildfire risks within your community and how to reduce that risk. The second one was Ready, Set, Go, Hawaii Action Guide, uh, Wildland Fire. So that's the one that actually points you to this brochure, this guide, where there's a lot more information in there. Um, the last two, um, which is help us help you, is basically going around your home, identifying these areas, you know, mm -hmm. clean up your clutter, clean up your gutters and that kind of stuff. And the last one was basically see something, say something. And that's where if you see smoke, it, don't be afraid. Just call 911. We'll send the company out there and, and check it out and determine what it is. Um, and so some of these pieces are actually in the, in the movie theaters as well. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, when I hear and I saw the one for, for Ready, Set, Go, um, the mm -hmm. question kind of came to my mind. I don't know if you guys have gotten this, too, is. You know, because people are a little more on edge, when do I need to evacuate? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure people are asking that to you because when we saw in Maui, some people weren't given a whole lot of notice. So mm -hmm. the question comes, you know, would I know when to go, like when to evacuate? Yeah, you, you know, I, I think in the end, it just comes down to your own, um, you know, you and your families, whatever you're, you're, you're comfortable with. I, I, 
I would say, you know, if you see smoke, um, regardless of where it is, I mean, have your bags ready to go and just evacuate. It doesn't hurt to leave a little bit earlier than, than needed. Mm-hmm. In fact, in some cases, it might be better to leave earlier than waiting to the last minute and waiting for an official to to notify you, right? Um, if, if you if you think about the actual firefight, and I'm, I'm talking more from the fire perspective, right? As we're actively engaged in this fire, we're considering all these things. We're trying to keep in mind, okay, where the fire is going because the winds change so often. So, right. you know, we could order you to evacuate in this zone, but the wind may shift and now it's going in a different direction. So it's, it's very dynamic. Um, I would suggest that most residents, um, if you see big fire, big smoke, just just leave. Just gather your belongings and leave. It's better to be safe than sorry. What was dealing with this incident on Maui and the Lahaina fires? What was that like for you personally? Because not a lot of people anywhere in the state mm-hmm. or anywhere have ever had to deal with that kind of devastation and grief. Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't go to Maui. Um, I know Chief Kalani um, was there for, for a couple of weeks, right? He, he's from Maui, so yeah. I think it had a, a heavier impact on, on him. But um, from my perspective, um, trying to coordinate the resources and, and plan for our deployment. Yeah, you, you for one, right, we, we're all connected. We all live with, within a state, whether we're separated by water or not. So we almost like we had a, a, a personal, you know, like um, you felt it in, in your heart, right? I mean, and it's, it's natural for everybody to, to want to help, but we feel like almost like, you know, it, it's our job to, to ensure that they get the help they need, even if we're outside the county. So, um, yeah, it was almost, um, you know, my wife's a psychologist, so she kept asking, hey, you guys are okay? Are you okay? And, you know, it, it's those kind of things. Even though you're not actually there, you see a lot of the images on TV. You're constantly hearing it throughout the day because you're actively engaged and trying to plan and, and send. So it was kind of hitting me, you know, personally and kind of feeling like, okay, I, I got to think, okay, how, how much is it? Is it affecting me? Yeah. Do I need to go talk to someone, see someone, whatever it is? It never got to that point because you know we have each other to talk to talk about. But yeah, it, it was it was getting kind of hard sometimes. When it comes to activating our emergency operations center here here on Oahu, we had mm-hmm. some experience with that with Marco Polo. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what was your role that day? Kind of just take us through like what you remember and, and your role in Marco Polo. Yeah, so Marco Polo, I think was what, July 14, 2017. So I was the battalion chief in our fire communication center. So that's a center that that takes in all the 911 calls and then we'll dispatch and manage all those radio communications. So actually that day I was actually at home sick. I was on I was on sick leave, but the fire was big enough for within policy, whatever, they notified um, the various chiefs. So I was I was called from home and just giving the heads up, hey, there's a really big fire. Um, there's people trapped and potential for fatalities. Um, so at that point, really, I just kind of authorized overtime because I knew they were just getting blasted with, mm-hmm. with calls mm-hmm. um, and just getting overwhelmed. So that was pretty much my extent on, on that day. Um, I didn't really have too much involvement on, on the actual day of the fire. It came in more after the fact when we had to go through our um, you know, the investigations and the after actions and see how we could approve um, processes and operations and the large scale incident like that. So. What kind of things? were we able to improve on or what did you take away from that day? So one of the big things, right, is is on a large scale incident like that, I mean, and really with brush fires or anything, anything fire related because it's, it's highly visible, you get a lot of 911 calls. Right. But with that incident, I mean, it, it was so big, it was so massive. We had people calling from 
literally all over the island. It was kind of weird, I guess, because, huh. you know, local style, right? People call their famine. And, but these guys were getting, like, I think the, I forget the actual stats were, but it was something around 300 911 calls within the first, like, you know, within the first 15 minutes, you know, something crazy like that. So now what that does is it takes away personnel who are, are manning other calls or, or manning the stations, you know, um, communicating with the companies. Yeah. Um, it, it takes them away because you got to answer every 911 call. Right. You know, and, and a lot of them was just, just to report, like, that there was a fire. I mean, people driving on a freeway. But there were some, if you weeded through them, there were actually people coming from the building. So, yeah. how do you How do you kind of rectify that going forward? Because you, you want to encourage folks, right? If you see something, yep. say something to call. Yep. But like you said, it kind of bogs down yeah. the personnel. Yep. Is there a fix to something like that? I think that's really maybe our partnership with, um, you know, social media and maybe the media, the news like that, to get the word out, maybe even radios, right? Uh -huh. To get the word out to people that, hey, we're aware of the situation. We have fire crews on scene. I think that that might help. I, I'm not sure of any other way you could really notify the public that, that we're at scene. Yeah, so quickly, you know, right? So quickly, yeah. yeah. Uh, this week, we thought it would be appropriate to have you on because it is Fire mm -hmm. Prevention Week, mm -hmm. um, not just on Oahu, but nationwide. Mm -hmm. But this year's theme is an interesting one. It's focused mm -hmm. around cooking fires. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we hear that often, but is that yeah. really the case? Is that actually that common here on Oahu, cooking fires? Yeah, cooking fires, you're right. I mean, it, well, if you think generally how, how fires start, right, they normally don't start by themselves, right? And spontaneous ignition, you know, is kind of yeah. right. And and here in, in Hawaii, right, lightning strikes and those kind of things from static electricity are rare because yeah. it's so humid. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, cooking fires are, are play a big part, right? I think statistically, and this is nationally, um, around half the fires, home fires, you know, to be exact, 49% of them start from, from cooking fires. So I have some stats. I mean, for, for this year, um, we have about 121 cooking fires to date. You know, but but I wanna I wanna make make note that not every cooking fire results in a structure fire mm -hmm. in a home fire, right? These are just fires that are calling to 901 because something's burning in a pot and maybe it's contained within a pot and then we respond. So it, it could be misleading. So to date in 2023, we've had 121 cooking fires. Mm -hmm. But that could be contained in a pot, to the oven, or whatever it is, yeah. So what kind of tips are you guys uh, letting the public know, especially for this week? Because mm -hmm. we did have a, a recent cooking fire that resulted in fatalities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so what, what can folks do to make sure that stuff like that doesn't happen ever again? Yeah, you know, the, 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 you know there's, there's a bunch, and they're really, if you think about it, they're, they're really easy to remember and, and somewhat, somewhat common sense, right? If you're obviously you're cooking something, don't, don't, don't leave it unattended. Um, if you have to leave, then obviously turn it off. If it's something like slow cooking, like you're simmering, like a stew or whatever, you know, um, on low heat, I mean, make sure you, you set up your timer to remind you that there, hey, there's something something on the stove. Um, you know, things like keep things away from, from the stove or the fire or whatever you're cooking, right? Don't leave anything combustible around, papers or drapes or whatever it is. Um, you know, if you're cooking oil, keep a, a lid nearby. You know, if it catches fire, then you can kind of slide the lid over the over the over the pot and contain that fire. So if you just kind of think generally about fire behavior and how fire works, right? You need the fuel, you need the oxygen, right? You need the heat, right? So if you kind of remove any one of those elements, then the fire will, will go out basically. So if you kind of think along those lines, right? You can remove the, the pot, whatever is from the heat, you can cover it to starve the oxygen, right? Or you just remove the fuel itself. How are you in the kitchen? Can you cook, Chief? Well, the, 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 the key to cooking good is you let everybody starve, 
and then uh-huh. everything tastes good. So, but, <laughs> okay, so myself, right? Say the communications team, we're on our way to your house. You kind of forgot you invited us. What's the meal you're cooking up? What's your go-to? Oh, so like a like a last minute, like a last minute meal. But you know that you got it. You know, you cannot get out of the park. You, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I, I think it really depends on what we have in our fridge. <laughs> <laughs> but the easiest thing is, right? I mean, you know, so so fire cooking at the station is, is a lot of one pot cooking, right? Because you need something that's within budget. You got to cook for enough people, right? And so, you know, probably the go-to meal in that case, something real simple. Yeah, just like hamburger curry or chili or something like that, okay. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's kind of the joke, right? Like all, all firefighters can cook. All firefighters can cook and play volleyball, right? <laughs> um, but, but what is it about, you know, cooking in the firehouse? Where do they get those skills from? Yeah. Um, you know, if you don't learn it from home, then you'll learn it real quickly in, in the firehouse. Right. And so I think it's just a culture and that tradition over, over the years that um, because you're kind of like, right, you're a crew of four or five, you're you're your family away from your mm-hmm. family. Right. And so um, you're, you're just under a lot of pressure to cook a meal that can provide <laughs> for your crew and leftovers for your crew and the next crew the next day right yeah um but yeah you know a lot of a lot of the 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 training i guess and the, the know how to cook really comes from the old timers i just passed down from generation to generation you know i've kind of seen a shift i mean i've been out of the field for a while but even when i was still in the station it seems to be um you're getting a little more healthier in, in the way they cook you know and i don't know if that's driven by what's what's cheap or whatever in the, in the store right um but it, it seems to be the trend is is people are eating a lot healthier versus in the past right it was it was a lot of good stuff but probably not the best for your health and i don't mean to stereotype i know that you know that's not every firefighter you know can cook the kind of thing but <laughs> can you talk a little more about that i mean the camaraderie everyone kind of talks about that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like you said when there's four or five you know just yeah. there for how many hours on end yeah um and that, that's yeah. kind of all you have yeah so it's just the nature of the of the work we have. Obviously, right when you fight a fire or rescue, whatever it is, you, you have to work together, and you really have to trust the person you're working next to. But that's really ingrained in you from from the very beginning, right? As a recruit, when you come in from day one, you're taught that the person you're sitting next to and working with is going to become your brother or, or sister. Um, and it, it's it's just. It's just, yeah, I don't know if it's, if you don't come into to the department already knowing it or just having it within you, you, you will learn it. And by the time you, you finish recruit class, which is seven and a half, eight months, it'll become ingrained in you. Um, just, a, just a sense of camaraderie and you just grow extremely close um, to your recruit mates. And that carries on into the station when you're with a new firefighter. Yeah, you said recruitment. What is the situation there? Does HFD have any open positions? Yeah, we we always have open positions. I think it's unrealistic to think that we're going to be a one hundred percent, you know, filled. It, it's just the timing of when people retire and separate, and and you know those kind of natural things within within any department. So we we're doing pretty good at keeping pace with it. You know, I mean, you know, Chief Kalani and I were we love data and we use we use those analytics to kind of predict what's going to happen in the future, depending on, on the class sizes in the past, and so. Based on that, we'll try and hold more recruit classes as needed to anticipate the the, the fill rate. Um, so currently, we have a class that's in in place right now, 30, 30 plus um, recruits. We have one currently going through their suitability and security and that kind of stuff, and that that'll be starting um, soon in January. So we have this ongoing re- recruit classes. We basically have, have two a year. 
And is that kind of where you guys want to keep it at, at 30? Because I know that the interest uh, to get into this department is high. So that must make it pretty competitive. Yeah, it, it, it's extremely competitive. I mean, you know, one day posting, right? It, it yields yeah. thousands of applicants. I mean, of course, as you go through the process, it, it gets whittled down. But still, in the end, you're still left with a, a lot of people that we can pull from. So ideally, yeah, I mean, you know, Based on the size of the um, our training center and the personnel involved, we can do you know forty five is probably that 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 nice number. Yeah. Um. So. So one day recruitment, you get thousands of applications, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know how much of this is myth. So maybe you can clear this for me. But I've heard. I know that the written test is hard, but I heard there's a swim test. Is that is and that's kind of where people struggle a little bit. Yeah, there there is a swim test. I mean, um, you know, I I I. I know people fail the swim test, but they fail in other parts as well. I, I think percent-wise, I, w- I would say, yeah, the swim test is probably where the most failures occur, right? Um, but, well, you know, like like anything else, right, you can you can prepare for it, so. Right. What is yeah. the swim test? How- it's basically, it, it's, a, it's a, so you're in a 50-meter pool, and you basically swim to one end back, so it's you swim a total of 100 meters. And I, I don't know the exact time. I think it's like two minutes and 30 seconds or something. Yeah. So I, you know, if you if you train for it, then then it shouldn't be too much of a problem for you. But that's like saying if you train for a marathon, you know, like it's still, <laughs> if it's something difficult, it's still difficult at the end. Yeah. What is yeah. the fitness requirement after you get in? Is there like annual tests, or, or how often does it happen, and what is it? Yeah. So so we just have an annual physical test, but it, it's not an annual like agility test. So um, as far as staying fit, that's that's your own personal. Um, you know, it's on you basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we do have the physical fitness programs in place where, you know, we have examples of what kind of exercises you can do. And for the most part, it, it's really up to you. But the crews nowadays are, are good. You know, they, they really, well, the ones that I know, they, they work out together, right? The captain really takes that lead and, mm-hmm. and gets everybody together to work out together. So, so what is the annual that they need to pass? Yeah, so it's, it's just more your, your it's more the health health physical. Okay. Yeah, just make sure you can see, hear, and breathe properly and that kind of stuff. Okay, so if yeah. you see someone who's, you know, having trouble breathing, I mean, would they have to be put under a more rigorous yeah. uh, secondary kind of... Yeah, so we have procedures and policies in place where, you know, if we notice someone who's having difficulty physically, yeah, that we can, we can identify them and, and throw them on some kind of program. Yeah. And about how many people are in the department right now? How many people do you guys oversee? uniformed and civilian yeah so total it, it's it's about um you know 1189 i believe so that's both uh, uniform and civilian what is that so, comparatively to other municipalities yeah so you know i i've heard that you know honolulu fire department as far as a metropolitan department is, is one of the larger ones yeah I've heard you know that it's, too. it's, yeah. it's you kind of think like what really you know in the county but you think about it right we're servicing the entire county right which is the entire island you know in the mainland right they have states and they're broken up counties as well but you have a lot of smaller departments within those counties and they really rely on mutual aid so metropolitan department you know more like new york chicago those kind of la mm-hmm. right where the, the counties are are, are so big right mm-hmm. yeah um that the department itself has to be has to be big so i, I from what i've heard i don't know um what the exact number is but we're definitely within the, the top 20 as oh, far wow. as um largest metropolitan departments and here on oahu which one is the busiest fire station here on oahu um so the poa fire station for sure is always ranked the number one right so that's the one right by um don quixote oh, okay you know but it, it makes sense right look at the look at the era of their services right a lot of high-rise de- very densely populated 
Um, they're one of the busiest. Our central fire station, which is right over here in downtown on uh, Bishop Street, they're one of the busiest. Um, yeah, so mostly it's, it's, it's the companies that are within town, the most densely populated areas are busy. And has anyone complained to you guys? I know we heard it at some of the town hall meetings about um, the sirens, mm-hmm. right? So the fire engine siren. Yeah. Is there standard operating procedures like for you guys, maybe say, af- you know, at nighttime, in the middle of the night or, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a, in a neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. there a difference or any kind of operating procedures that you follow? Yeah, so we just kind of follow HRS, right? I mean, which basically allows um, first responders or emergency vehicles to to be deemed an emergency vehicle. You you, you shall use both your lights and sirens, right? Mm-hmm. And what that kind of affords us is the ability to kind of go through red lights and that kind of, or you know, maybe exceed the posted speed limit, you know, whatever it is, right? It it, it exempts us um, from those kind of requirements that the, otherwise we'd have to abide by. Um, and really, we leave it up to the the engineer, or that's the person driving the truck, or the captain, um, to utilize their lights and sirens. But they know that if they turn off any one of those, then they they should be operating more like a normal vehicle. And if mm-hmm. that's the case, then we may not get to scene as as quickly as we want to. So we 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 hear it. We get complaints a lot, you know. Um, and I get it, right? Two, three in the morning, right? They may be thinking that, hey, I'm sleeping. Who's on the road at that time of day, right? But um, You'd be surprised um, the people that are on the road. And really, all you need is that one car who doesn't see you going through the intersection, yeah. right? And then, you know, an accident occurs. So. Yeah. Chief, how long have you been with the department? I've been with the department a little, little over 25 years. Yeah. What, what did you start as? What, where did I? Oh, my, my first station. Yeah. Oh, so everybody comes in, you go through a recruit class, and then you come out, you do your six months, and you become a firefighter one. So my first stations were um, out in uh, Waiau. And a Pro City Fire Station, but you know my 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 father was a um in the Honolulu Fire Department as well. He he was a fire captain, so as a kid, right, I was always around the station, right, always you know playing around and stuff like that. So, um, even though I have twenty five years within the department in uniform, I, I felt like I've been in the department for a lot longer since I've been with them, um, you know, as as a kid. So you knew you always wanted to do this? No, I I, I oh, didn't. No. <laughs> I, I think it's yeah, it, it's it's a little weird. I think because um maybe I was immersed in it, and kind of got it out of my system. Right, I knew what the fire guys were like. I knew what the station was like. I knew what the truck was like. Whatever it was, right? It just wasn't, you know. So I actually um, I actually went to school to become an engineer. <laughs> you know, so I, I I went to college, got my engineering degree, and then um, it wasn't until I started working that I realized um, maybe it all came back to me at the time that maybe engineering wasn't for me, nothing, something I could do for the next 25, 30 years. Um, and so my dad was like, hey, take the test, you got nothing to lose. So I did it, and the rest is history. <laughs> Where did you go to high school? I, I went to Damien. So you yeah. went to Damien, and then you mm-hmm. went to study engineering. Where did you go to college? I, I went to um, Boston okay. University. Yeah. And so did you like intern? Did you get a job in engineering? Or where did the, the switch happen where you're like, I don't know if I can do this for the rest of my life? Yeah, yeah. It, it probably, you know, when I was in high school, you know, surfing and stuff, you know, I just remember this one time where this guy was in trouble, a diver. So went over, rescued him, brought him to shore. I mean, definitely would have been lost if we didn't go get them. Um, and so just that feeling of, okay, well, we kind of helped someone, kind of stuck with me. So as I was going through college and kind of getting more immersed into the studies, you know, I kind of realized at some point, oh, this is kind of, it's different, it's very interesting, but I'm not sure if I feel it in my heart. 
Um, but, but I got my degree anyway, and then I came back home and actually worked, right, um, within the engineering field um, just to see what it was like. But I think all along, probably that's like third, fourth year uh, engineering, I kind of realized that maybe this is, it, I, I just didn't feel it. I wasn't passionate about it. Um, and so I felt uh, maybe the department was was something that I could do. And I think that re- something that really um, influenced me was um, in my engineering uh company i work with two firefighters they were both engineers and they both were firefighters and they're like hey you gotta come in because your days off you still can do the engineering and and so they you know they basically motivated me to to apply and i got in i basically did that uh for a couple years after i got into the department i kind of dual rolled it Mm -hmm. firefighter engineer and got to the point where i had kids and just didn't have time to do both so is that common I don't know about nowadays, but I think in the past, yeah, um, a lot of firefighters had had part-time jobs, you know, whatever whatever it was, construction or whatever it was. But um, because of time that we have off, it affords you that, you know, ability to, to work part-time and earn extra money. So, You talked about the, the guy that you guys saw when you were out in the water, but in your mm-hmm. 25 years with this department, what do you think is the most heroic thing you've seen because I know there are a lot of stories that go untold mm. and I'm hoping maybe you know you can use this platform if you're comfortable mm. to share what the most heroic thing you have seen in your 25 years here that, that I have seen um man you, you know there, there, there are so many there are so many different incidents um I think it, it and it's nothing when you, when you mention heroic people might be thinking oh you know jumping out of a building or jumping out of a window and saving someone that and that kind of stuff really it, it, it's it's almost like the everyday stuff whether it's just a medical you know um, or helping a kapuna or just you know it, it's those kind of little things that in my mind um, are, are, are somewhat heroic right um, whether it's a, a auto accident and the person's not hurt but they're definitely traumatized and just comforting them and just that appreciation that you're there. I mean, those those are things that kind of remind me um, of heroism, really. What Mm. trains you for that, though? Because is there, you know how police often say, you know, we're not trained as mental health experts. But when you do arrive on a scene and you do have to kind of provide that piece, where Mm. does the training for that come from? It, it just comes, there is no training, right? There is no, we don't have any procedure for it. I think it just comes from just being a human, I think. Uh, you, you see someone who is in distress and of course you're going to mitigate the situation first, right? Um, but it, just a simple acknowledgement and is comforting for, for that individual or, or the victim, you know? Um, you know, I just, I remember this one incident and um, it, it was, a, there was a building fire um, and I was actually the, the driver of the truck. So I pulled up the scene, the crews went in to actually fight the fire. And I came in after cause I had to suit up. And then when I was walking there, I, I, I know this, this woman holding a, uh, like a two year old, right. And a two year old was crying. It just didn't look right. Um, so I, you know, check with her and it ended up being that the two year old was, was actually in the fire. And at that point kind of realized that, um, he was, he was burnt. So we, we, that became almost like a separate incident and so we handled that situation apart from the actual fire but kind of remember um and like i said this is comforting you know the victim and 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 maybe the parent in this case where you know every truck has teddy bears you know so we can we can comfort kids like that we're you know going through whatever so i remember i just ran to the truck grabbed the teddy bear this is after the the child was being tended to already by medical personnel and i kind of gave the the teddy bear to to the child 
I just remember he just he just grasped it super tight, you know. And that was, I mean, I knew that was gonna happen, but I didn't I didn't expect the reaction from the from the mom, who was very appreciative of all that, almost more so than the actual medical treatment itself, right? Mm-hmm. So that that was that was that was huge for me. So those I think those are examples of you're not really taught it, you just know what you gotta do. Uh, you know, I think anyone else would do it in, in that situation, right? So I, I would hope they would, you know, do that. And is your is your father still alive? Yep, he's still alive. Yeah. And what did he tell you yeah. about, you know, when you were promoted to the position you're in now and the job mm. that you do now? Um, yeah. What does he say to you? Um, just you know, just just very very proud. I, I guess didn't really say too much, <laughs> but but just showing it really that he was very proud and it kind of reminded him that that really this is just a reflection of of you, right, and how you raised me. Um, and really didn't have to say too much, too many words. You know, I, I know what he was feeling and I know what he, what he meant. And um, Chief, do you have children? I, I do. Do yeah. they have pressure to join the fire department? Uh, no, not at all. We, we don't, yeah, we don't pressure them at all. I, I ask them, hey, don't, you know, you guys want to be firefighters, you know? And they're and like, they nope. Say, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is okay with me, but you know, but but that's how I was too when I was uh, when I was younger, right? I had no desire, and then somewhere down the line, something clicks in, in your head, and and this is something that you want to do, and then when you're doing it, it it feels so right. I I don't know how to explain it, you know. Um, you just end up in a in a career in a position where it it's, doesn't feel like a job. I don't know how to explain it, right? It just it was meant to be almost. Well, Chief, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything that we missed? No, no, I, I just want to um, throw out there for the public, you know, and um, our mission really starts with, right, being, you know, prevention and then obviously preparedness. That's our training. We're always doing that. But the, the number one thing for the public is the prevention side. And this is where, for the most part, they can help us the most, right? You know, take some personal accountability for your own safety. I mean, pay attention to the fire tips that, that is available on our website. Those things are, are huge uh, for us, right? And you know, we, we can work together to, to keep each other safe. And that's a big thing. I also want to throw out there, um, outside of the fireside, we have a lot of um, public education on a bunch of different things, you know, which is um, accessible through our website, um, whether it's CPR, right, um, mm-hmm. bystander CPR, or for the Kapunas, right, we have that SAFE program, which is the smoke detector installations. We have fall protection, that kind of things for the Kapuna. We have, there's a lot of other things out there that are not so much fire-related, and that's accessible through our website. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you have a question for the Honolulu Fire Department, Mayor Rick Blangiardi, or any of the departments here in the city and county of Honolulu, you can submit your podcast questions by heading to oneoahu.org slash podcast. Happy Fire Prevention Week, and until next time, aloha. Aloha.